understand what black is, the source from which all things come, the security blanket for the stars, understand what black is. It's not a color, it's the basis of all colors. It's not a complexion, it is a reflection of all complexions called human. And out of this blackness, passion flows like a river. Feelings tell the truth. Song and dance and making you laugh are family members. You're listening to the Tom Thickman Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM. Your home for community radio. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. That's from The Last Poets. And some of you may or may not be familiar with, with uh, The Last Poets, but kind of Google The Last Poets. We know about slams and poetry and uh, the, 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 uh, the interest in, 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 in poetry readings. But if you think of Shakespeare, just the poetry has been around with us for a little, for a long time. In fact, my guest today, Professor Willie James Jennings, Associate Professor of Systematic uh, Theology and Africana Studies at the Yale Divinity School, also is, is working on, I believe, a poetry book. But um, this is a, a very challenging show for me, but also a very uh, exciting show because the title is After Whiteness and Professor Jennings is gonna kind of expound upon that in terms of his recent book in 2020 that After Whiteness is included in the title. Um, and this is also Black History Month, but when I think of this, this Black History Month, which as you know, originally started as Negro History Week, it's uh, 24 seven, 365 is a, is, is they, is we can celebrate black, black history. And, and Professor Jennings, years ago, when I was with the inner city newspaper, I used to talk about the African Genesis Month. And some people have talked about this month being uh, Black Resistance Month or Afrofuturism Month. So words and, and symbols and, and cognitive uh, archetypes kind of circulate in our, our mental sphere. But nonetheless, we're gonna focus on really in my mind, and I'm not gonna prejudge what Professor Jennings is gonna say, but what does it mean to be human? And what is, how do we even define what, what humanity and humanity happens to be? Professor Jennings, welcome. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a joy to be with you on this program. It's, it's good. It's, it's exciting to be with you. I, I might get a chance to lay eyes on you uh, this afternoon because you're a busy guy. You're, you're moderating an important event uh, this, this today, I believe, at the Divinity School, correct? I am. I am. Uh, a wonderful panel discussion, bringing back some of our celebrated alums to talk about um, Black theology and where Black theology has been and where they see going in the future. And everyone, that is open to the public, 409 uh, Prospect Street. They'll be in the Niebuhr Hall, uh, the Yale Divinity School. It's also going to be live streamed, so just go to the Yale Divinity School site. Professor Jennings, I was look, look I looked at your, you were down in, you're a traveling man. You were down in, in, in North Carolina on, on, I guess, on Sunday, you had to be there. When did you leave? Did you leave like just, was it a hit, hit, and, hit and miss kind of thing, or did you spend some time or? No, I had I had to get in and get out. So I was there Sunday to, to preach, and then I had to get on back home. Like James Brown, man, I had to hit the next city. <laughs> there, there you go. And, and you've been on the trail. And uh, your, 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 your presentation, your sermon, your, your delivery at the Duke Divinity School, I really enjoy listening to that. I also listened uh, earlier this week. You were at the, I think it was at the Berkeley, but, but not Berkeley in terms of California or Boston, but the, the Berkeley Divinity, there's a, panel discussion you were on uh, with with two two individuals uh, um, like over an hour lecture you you were, you were chatting yeah um, where was I <laughs> it was down in Texas somewhere I believe and I listened to that 
and I also read, read your book After Whiteness. So I wanted to let, let people know that although you are the associate professor of systemic systematic theology and African studies at the Old Divinity School, your, your book in 2010, The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, and it won, it won a number of awards. Uh, your, your, your discussions of, of, of your, your commentaries on the revolution of the intimate. I'm just trying to share some of the, the phraseology that, that you've shared with mm -hmm. folks, just to kind of let them know that whether you've read, read your total books or heard you speak, you're at least capturing from market, marketing and public relations is so important. So you're capturing people's attention. And then, as I've mentioned, after, after whiteness and, and education and belonging, which is really, I, I've several times I've continued to, to read that. And then lastly, unfolding the world, recasting a Christian doctrine of creation. And then this, have, have you finished this book of poetry, the, the Time of Possession? I haven't finished it yet. I'm still, as I say, I'm still nursing um, some, some poems there, but I'm hoping to get that done fairly soon. Great, great. What I wanted to do, uh, because easily people could just go to YouTube and listen to you, so they don't have to listen to me, but, <laughs> but I wanted to, so I'm trying to think of a way to more challenge myself as well as our audience and maybe even challenge you a little bit in terms of the four or five objections that you've received over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Now I use the term received because even when someone criticizes you or or hopefully they haven't thrown tomatoes at you when you've been on stage, but when, when you've when you've hit when you've been challenged, I was thinking think of the four or five times or 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 theses or or, mm -hmm. or or pushbacks that people have provided you with as you've yeah. entered interacted with people and, and I'll, I'll shut up, but, but I, it's just the reason this, 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 this desire came, came upon me to ask you to pose this question to you is just seeing how you've interacted with folks that as far as I'm concerned, I would want to eliminate them from the planet, but I, <laughs> but I, but, and not be caught, you know, in doing it, uh, be a, but so you're, I've just been intrigued with how you've been able to navigate and respond uh, to 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 outrageous slings and arrows of of of, of fortune. So, mm -hmm. what are some of the the, the, the uh, four? That was, you know, what, what jumps into your mind? And we have about 40, 40 45 minutes to kind of unpack some of these challenges that you have have, have encountered and that you still might be trying to uh, overcome. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, but thanks again for uh, bringing me on the on the show, my friend. It's so so great to be with you. You know. Um, the, the, the difficulty that I always encounter when I do my work and I, and I do my public speaking with folks is to um, get them to step into the full possibilities of what it means to live a Christian life. And th that's always a challenge, and especially it's a challenge given the um, racial condition of the Western world in which Christianity is so deeply woven into that racial condition so deeply wedded to um, the reality of whiteness, and so you know one of the first one of the first crucial points of pushback that I always get are from um, folks who identify as white, who are deeply deeply disturbed that I'm actually asking them to think about something called whiteness, mm. and that's always a challenge for people. They um, you know, as I've said many times, uh, the difficulty for so many people in the Western world is that they never got the memo mm -hmm. that whiteness was a creation, or more specifically, a recreation of human existence. 
And that recreation is precisely what we are still struggling to get people to understand. Mm. That whiteness is not phenotype. It's not biology. It's not culture. And it certainly is not part of God's creation. It is a way of being in the world and a way of seeing the world at the same time and having the power to realize how one imagines the world to be and to function inside that realization. And so, as I say, it's, a, it's an engine of aspiration, and it has always been in the Western world. And so mm. when you point that out to people, what you're saying to them is that, that there is a way of being in the world is that, that does not operationalize whiteness in all its imperial and oppressive and supremacist ways of being in the world. But the challenge is for them to even admit mm. that they're inside of it. And so it's one constant struggle. In my many years of teaching, I mean, it was I, for many years I taught um, every year, sometimes every semester, a course on race and the church, race and theology, race and Christianity. And that course was always exhausting because mm. students pushed back hard. They did not want to imagine that there was an identity that they should inhabit, especially as Christians, that there's an identity mm. they should inhabit that is different from that racial identity. Mm. And um, what I tried to explain to them, especially my, my, you know, to my, my white students, and is to explain to them that just as so many people of color have all their life learned how to carve a difference between that horrible, derogatory racial vision of who they are and who they actually are, pulling out the little slivers of truth from the way that derogatory vision has twisted and, and distorted their historical realities, but trying to pull out those little pieces of truth, clean them up, fix them up, and let them stand as a part of who they are. Just as so many people of color have done that and continue to do that every day, the challenge is now for so many people who have identified as white to do that same work. But here's the problem, Tom. The problem is, is that if someone has been, and this is the case for so many, if someone has been presented with a form of identity that is always positive, always conducive to advantage, always um, uh, a facilitator of the removal of obstacles, and is the hard-won achievement of one's ancestors, then why would you want to give that up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so the difficulty for so many so many uh, Christians, white Christians, is that, especially in the West and especially in this country, you know, they stand in long legacies of what I call um, the eradication of their um their European, the European founding. So they they will mm. come and they will as quickly as possible. And they, we have a long history of this in, the, in this country. Mm-hmm. People changing their names, people um, not make, making sure their children don't speak the old tongue, making sure the children don't know the stories, making sure that the way they dress, the way they look, um, all of it looks of the new, the new world, the looks the, the look of America, the look of life in America. The blonding of the hair, the the um, lightening of the skin, everything to move away from that immigrant past, and so for so, for so many people, their their great grandmothers, great grandfathers, 
would be proud of the fact that their great-grandchildren don't know nor look like nor act like the folks of the old world. And so when people do want to reclaim, as many people do today, but they do want to reclaim their kind of um, their, their past, their European past, at this point, it's, it's inside of an act of recreation, not so much of recreation, but all this comes back to the crucial struggle and the crucial point of resistance I always get as the first one, which is, why are you talking <laughs> about whiteness so much? Why are you oppressing on us in this way? What, what is, and that's really, really so helpful to hear you explain that, do do you also get criticized, or or it's a question? If you, when you say that what you just said to somebody in the audience, would someone also then say, Professor Jennings, okay, I agree with you, but how can I evolve or change, or are you offering me a solution, Professor, or you're just condemning me? Yeah, that, yeah, and that that often is a part of it. And the reality is, is that most of the time, I I, you know, I begin with the way forward. The difficulty is not that I don't give a way forward. The difficulty is people don't want to take it. Okay, so, all right, all right. Te- tease us, tease us. So, so the way forward, I, so I'll come back to the example I just gave. So I'll often say to white Christians especially, so I just mentioned to you, your sisters and brothers, your siblings in Christ who are sitting next to you, people of color, who engage in this process of separating the racial derogatory from who they are. So right next to you, sitting right next to you, are Mm. people who you should join arm in arm, hand in hand, in doing that, what I call that renunciation of whiteness work. Mm. And so the the first step is to open your ears, open your hands, listen and learn, and follow the examples all around you Mm. of walking away. Now, of course, this is indeed a spiritual matter. And it is indeed a matter of, of deep spiritual discipline. And it, it, it is, as I've you know, said to many people, you, you have to think of that wonderful passage in the book of Hebrews, where um, it says that Moses, when he realized who he was, he was a son of Pharaoh. He was in Pharaoh's house. At that moment, Moses chose to identify with the Hebrews, even though he was in Pharaoh's house, he chose to identify with the Hebrews and to stand with them. And in the Hebrews, it says, and in that way, in that way, Tom, he was following the Christ. Hmm. In that way, Hmm. by choosing to identify with those that were completely removed from the reality of advantage and opportunity he existed inside of in Pharaoh's house. And so that that's that's the um that's the first pushback and, and the challenge always are to get folks to yield to the work of the spirit hmm. uh, and get to get people to open themselves to what God wants to do through them. And that begins by, as I like to say, it begins by a fundamental renunciation of whiteness. And the difficulty, obviously, I'm repeating myself a little bit here, but it's important. Yeah, sure, yes. The difficulty, the difficulty is that, again, if you have been shaped inside the um, implicit advantages that 
so implicit that you cannot even see them of of this of the reality of being white, then it's a real struggle to um to, to want to challenge it. As as I always say, you know, think of think of two hands being held together, and that they are held together so tightly that if you look at one hand and then turn over and look at the other hand, it's like you're looking at the 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 one the the, the same hand. Mm. And the reality of it is, is that for many Christians, especially that their whiteness and their Christianity are so woven together that for them to start to try to pull them apart is extremely painful. Because why would they want to do that? So to, to ask, I want you to pull this apart. I want you to start to see yourself. And, and it's not just a question of seeing yourself, but to then think about all the ramifications, the political, social, economic ramifications of challenging that way of being in the world. And once we start to put that on the table, my goodness, boy, that's where that's where um, the struggle is, but that's really where discipleship is. I, I certainly want to delve in in terms of the, your theological working in the, the vineyard. But before I go there, just as a on a secular standpoint, it seems to me in your in your travels you've you've encountered counselors or a psychologist or a therapist to uh, on the secular professional services side, professional therapy side, have you encountered any academic disciplines or friends that can help white people evolve away from their uh, their heritage and move into humanity? So is there a role for for, for a psychologist or a psychotherapist? But the word cognitive dissonance kind of just keeps, keeps on coming back to me. Are you creating so much internal struggle that they're they're frozen? And paralyzed rather than they able to move. Well, well, you know, I I think that every discipline can be of service in this, and I think not only of um, the therapeutic intervention, but as I like to talk about, this also has to do with um, uh, both architectural and geographic intervention. Part Mm. of what we're talking about now is the reconfigurations of our habitation and uh, our living. Mm-hmm. The the as I call it, the the rethinking of the reality of dwelling, mm-hmm. and so what what's what's necessary is to invite people into um, a deep consideration as a communal project, not just me by at home staring at my mirror, but as, as a kind of shared project of rethinking the very fabric, the very structure of our daily living. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where um, I'm excited about the work ahead. I, I don't understand this to be a, a mountain so high that we can't climb. Mm-hmm. Because here's what we have to understand about these matters. Um, the, 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 the racial condition, uh, as we now experience it, it is not like a, <clears throat> it's not like a building that is standing there impenetrable, immovable, and we have to try to figure a way how to get into it. It, it is a, think of it more as an energy being applied against energies for thriving living, right? Mm-hmm. And, what, and what we have to do is we have to turn that energy toward the good. Because right now that energy is turned in a way that resists creating new realities of thriving. So that being the case, I think every every discipline and every vocation can be enlisted in helping us think through what would a different kind of living look like where um, the the way we dwell um, crumbles, starts to crumble from within the um, the structures of whiteness. 
say 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 some more about that if you wouldn't and then perhaps we've in even at the divinity school I, I i'm guessing but i want to get your confirmation that the uh the, the village the the building the new building construction mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. is part is part strikes me as being part and parcel of that desire that you've just articulated well it this come this comes down to what so many people um see but don't in many cases understand that um the racial condition Tied, tied into racial antagonism, white supremacy, oppression, segregation, all of this is structured into what we call the built environment. And by the built environment, we mean the way communities, neighborhoods, cities, homes, are, uh, uh, um, various zoning mm-hmm. realities, how, how all of this has come to be. And what many people don't understand, Tom, is that um, long after a group of virulent racists have died. If they have been able to structure neighborhoods and communities, structure um, patterns of living, flows of life and of traffic and so forth, they can bake into those very structures their own racial antagonism, Mm. their own racial hatred. Mm. And so when I say to people, in order to start to address whiteness, I don't want you to, first of all, stare into a mirror and look inwardly. I want you to do some of that, but I, what I also want you to do is look outwardly at the shape of a neighborhood, hmm. the, 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 the shape of the, how the goods and services flow through communities. I want you to think about the way in which my daily life is structured by my movements, because we are, we are in, in, in constitutively, we are movement. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do we understand that movement and how does that reinforce the very racial hatred and antagonism that was built into the neighborhood, built into the structure of the community? And how might we rethink it so that the very structure of our living starts to speak against it? So what does this mean? It means the simple things, as you and I know, um, one of the great engines that sustains Racial antagonism that sustains white supremacy is the reality of segregation. Redlining, et cetera. Yeah, I, I continue to meet people. I continue to meet people every day who they were raised in almost all white communities. Mm-hmm. Where the only encounter with people different from themselves was a very a highly controlled encounter. Mm-hmm. Where they were always in control. Now, so but here's here's what we have to ask ourselves: What does it do to a human being's psyche? Yes, be raised in a situation where the only way you encounter difference is under control. What does it mean to be raised in a community where all the questions about life, all the the ways in which you come to understand and see the world? have been shaped in a mind-numbing homogeneity, where that is everything that only looks like you, acts like you, but also thinks like you. Hmm. And so I I have met scholars, and they will start talking, and I will realize, this person person has never been around anybody other than white people. Hmm. Her entire life, her entire life. 
And now we we set them, we I talk about this after whiteness, we set them loose, we unleash them in a classroom, like a multicultural classroom. And then we ask, why are we having difficulties here? It's precisely because we're looking at people for whom the built environment did them harm. Mm. So, so, we, so we do want to involve every discipline. We want to involve everyone who, who has to live in, live in the world. That mm-hmm. is everyone who lives in a neighborhood, everyone who lives in a house, everyone who lives in a community. This is all a part of, this is all our work. And, and so when you hear the, the word gentrification, it means to you what? In terms of its current manifestation? It means the, the continuing reflexes of an unthinking, white supremacy that's built inside of capitalist, the capitalist imagination. And, and it's, it's, we have about 20 minutes and I want to kind of cover a few more topics. And okay. mm-hmm. you, you, you've just uh, teased me as you've been teasing people with your academic journey to kind of reconnect with you either through radio or just to read your books, et cetera. And, and so this, this, is, this is exciting. Uh, spiritual indwelling, you, you, you referenced the, the, the power, uh, the, the guideposts that, that are available by uh, focusing on the spiritual life. Say a little bit more about that, if you would, and maybe even if you're so willing to share a little bit about your, when perhaps your conversion experience took place, whether you're 10 or 11 or 12, or whether it was a, <laughs> a, a series of episodes. Uh, I've had a chance to chat with, with friends. I graduated from the Divinity School in 1975 with the MDiv. And so, although I'm not, didn't go, not ordained and I didn't go to divinity school to, from, from, from a professional standpoint, it was more of a mental kind of journey, but I've had a chance to have a lot of minister friends, <laughs> black and white. And, and I've asked them about their, 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 when they heard the call, whether they paid the call, whether they're still paying the call. And mm-hmm. I, I, just curious uh, in terms of your, when that stimulus kind of uh, injected your spirit. That's a great question for me. I, I um I was always that kid who asked questions. So I grew up in the church and I grew up in Grambus, Michigan, which is um, if anybody knows the Grambus, Michigan, they would know that it's an extremely theological town. Um, lots of lots of churches, the home of a denomination, uh, the home of several of the most famous Christian book um, publishers, Urbans, mm-hmm. Zondervans, Baker. Um, so I grew up surrounded by Christianity and Christian churches and all the trappings that go along with that. But I was always that kid who questioned everything. Mm. And um, that questioning, that questioning itself, I later learned that question itself, I, I think was was um, the spirit of God drawing me to to seek clarity and truth. Uh, even as a very uh, young person, my, my poor pastor, he was. I, I, I think I was the most um, uh, both beloved and hated child in the church. <laughs> I was a good kid, but mm-hmm. I was the kind of kid that, you know, if you were a minister, you're like, oh, God, here he comes again. I have three questions for you today, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, I, I, I was precocious and didn't have enough enough uh, polish to not say, I don't, what you just said didn't make any sense. So I would say that. <laughs> you mm. said that maybe. So my, my, my journey began in questioning, and um, for me, what it meant was that the 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 deep questions about what it meant to be a black man 
in America, and what it meant to be to be black in America, black um, uh, facing what we were facing and are facing, met with the deep questions about who is God, mm. and what what does God have to do with my blackness? What does God have to do with my with my struggle? And so, what drove me forward, and what continues to drive me forward, is um, living inside the deep calling to the deep. As I like to say, um, the the deep problems and the deep questions that people have about their existence and about the configuration of the world, bound to those questions about God and not only God's existence but God's actions. What are you doing, God? Hmm. And to me, all all intellectual life, if it comes to life must live between those two realities of inquiry. And say, say, uh, say, say, say that again. So, uh, you know, all, all intellectual life, if it's, going to, if it's going to come to life, it's going to truly touch the energies of life, it has to exist between those two deep realities of inquiry. Mm. What, 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 what is it about my existence, especially inside of the racial condition, especially inside of a world in which um, the whole world has been turned into commodity. What does my existence mean? And that all those questions have to be placed beside inside the other set of questions, between the other set of questions. That is, who is this God? Mm. And what is this God doing in the world? And to me, intellectual life is really exciting mm. when, you, when you stand between those two. To stand with just one without the other, to me, is you, you always, in many ways, um, undermine you. You you wash out the depth of intellectual inquiry that's possible, especially in universities. When when universities, um, you know, thankfully I'm at a place that that honors that second set of questions, that second reality of inquiry. But when you're in places that don't, you can sense that there is something profoundly, you know, something's missing, something, the profound absence, a, a deep hole that should should be filled with this other reality. So the spiritual life in that regard, then, for me, always encompasses, always enfolds the intellectual life. Mm. And one of, one, mm. of the great, one of the great challenges today in the modern university is to um, allow for people to uh, allow those two things to touch. Mm. Um, the spiritual life and the intellectual life are deeply woven together. And the best, the best kind of life in the academy and the best kind of life for those who graduate and move forward is a life in which their their intellectual endeavors and whatever vocation they've entered are so deeply woven into their spiritual journey that um, they are they cannot be separated and should not be separated. It seems me just as you were ending there, my mind flashed back to your your your, your sermon on Sunday where you you use this 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 H O H O H O H O P E word in terms of hope and <laughs> and uh, Clinton used used hope from I guess Hope Arkansas and Jesse used hope in terms of keep hope alive so it's been part of our public that word those those four letters have been part of our public mm -hmm. discourse for so long just mm -hmm. wonder if you wanted to share a little bit about the Sunday uh, your, your your sermon on Sunday because uh, again the, the skepticism this dystopia this depression this uh, oh, yeah. 
I, I had, and I, I won't, I won't uh, pain your listeners with the, the recap, but I, I will say this: that um, the the um, the crucial matter in front of us right now, especially, you know, as I, I said in my sermon, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of twenty somethings and thirty somethings and forty somethings, and the crucial matter in front of us now is how to understand and sustain hope. Given given what we're facing on this planet, and one of the difficulties of, for so many people, they they don't know what the work of hope is. The work of hope is not the work of of um, working up sentiment, a sentimentality, working up feeling. The work of hope is to be disciplined by it, mm. that one one lives in it and toward it, as as both a compass and a friend. And that is the challenge for so many of um, so many people. Now, I, I, as a Christian, what I what I had said is that one of the mistakes that we often make is we confuse um, the work of hope with progress. Mm-hmm. And what I meant by that is, you know, if someone understands that they are inside a story of progress, with its progression and regression with his movement forward and it's stepping backward, then their hope is calibrated to that progress. So they are subject to the ups and downs, the ebb and flows of progress and falling backward. But if your hope is grounded in something else, and here it's grounded in God, grounded in what God is doing in the world and what you understand yourself to be doing in relationship to that work, then your hope is not calibrated whether there's progress or not. Now, of course, we, we we want progress and we take note of progress. We take note, notice of, it, of achievements and failures. We think through them carefully, but our hope is not calibrated by them. Our hope is not grounded in them. And that's the difference. Hope mm. is a discipline. Mm. And for so many people, especially so many young people, this is a lesson they haven't learned. Um, they, they have not learned that um, your hope is not tied to um, ideas of progress based on liberal democracy. Your hope is based in life with God. And that life will sustain you in the midst of the work you must do. Weave in a little bit of the the, the, the Jesus word, you referenced the God word. Weave in a little bit about the, the, the Jesus word. I've been listening to some of your your lectures and reading the book and the role and the symbolism of the, the Jesus persona in terms of what you've just mentioned for us to have a well, the, well this, the, that's fruit, the, the fruit, fruits of our labor. Right. That's well. That's the whole point. That the, the reality of a disciplined life and hope is to to enter the life of Jesus. Hmm. That is that's the crucial matter. That as I said in on on Sunday that a life of hope rooted in His life. Mm. is one that allows us to participate in the work that Jesus is doing in this world without allowing ourselves to link our hope <laughs> to progress, mm-hmm. to failure and achievement. We want those things. We're fighting for those things. But at the end of the day, the engine that moves us forward is not achievement upon achievement. The engine that moves us forward is the life of Jesus grounded in 
his life with God and the hope that is established in and through his life. This, of course, is the, you know, for so many, we, we talked about this earlier, for, for so many people who, who identify as Christian, this is, of course, a memo that they never got. Hmm. Because many of them um, have mistaken a story of progress with the story of hope. They've mistaken a story of accomplishment with the life of Jesus. And so um, they have not gotten the memo that these are not the same thing. Hmm. And um, the the kind of triumphalism that we are always susceptible to here in this country over uh, what you know what good the country has done and continues to do in the world always makes this even more dangerous that we lodge our hope in the possibilities of this nation state and um, many people have never gotten as I said never gotten a story that um, the story we are inside of those of us who are Christian the story we are inside of as Christians not the story of the United States it's the story of Jesus's life, God incarnate. That's the story we're inside of. And so that means um, that's how we organize mm. the, the narrative structure of our lives. It's not the story of the, you know, the, not the rise of the United States, not the sustain of the United States, and not the future of the United States. That's not the story, the, the overarching governing story of our lives. Now, I know for many people, and maybe for some of your listeners, this will sound extremely strange. <laughs> <laughs> but th this is, in fact, for those who are Christian, this is, in fact, the reality for us. Um, you know, the, there is that great line in the, the book of Revelation, which says, in effect, um, that there will come a day when all nations shall stream into the new Jerusalem, and that um, that is, in fact, the ultimate goal, that th there, isn't, there isn't the eternality of the United States of America. I know for some people, they imagine that, but that's not what we should be imagining. So, so when you think of the Ukraine, and you think of China, and, and you think of the United States, and even Turkey, for that matter, what, what comes to your mind and companion with what you've just said? The, 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 the key at this moment is to remind ourselves that in the struggle, in the struggle for, for uh, between nations, the struggle for national independence, the struggle for sovereignty and for viability, the thing we have to remember as Christians is that at the end of the day, what, what constitutes our collective life is life as the people of God, not as uh, and, and you name the nation. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, what that then means is that the ethic that drives us, the moral vision that drives us, certainly is certainly is commensurate with the moral vision that wants to push against the use of violence, that mm -hmm. wants to uh, bring peace and and in war. But it presses us beyond that to a shared life, because. What, what do we know about the struggle right now in Ukraine? We know that this is a struggle um, initiated by a madman who wants control of the resources of Ukraine. We know this, that um, it is no accident that um, global, global food supplies have been profoundly affected by this mm -hmm. war. And it's no accident that that president in Russia 
is clear about what he wants. So we live our life beyond, beyond the restrictions and the narrowed vision of a nation thriving. We live inside of, of a world that thrives and is joined together in common, common purpose for thriving. Hmm. Hmm. I want to shift for a second to theological education in mm -hmm. places like the Divinity School and Duke Divinity School. And are, are the students back, by the way, back from Atlanta with uh no, our students are—they they are still at the Proctor Conference. At the Proctor Conference, they'll be back. Um, um, they'll be back uh, later on today, I believe. Some some have come back last night, I think, but most of them will be back later on today. It's, let's take a few minutes about the the future of theological education in in the context that you taught at Duke, and now you're here in New Haven, and you're a worldwide speaker. But let me get to the point. It, the r rumor has it that uh, good good. Uh, Colleague of yours, a fellow soldier, a fellow, a fellow warrior, has been is joining the the ranks here in New Haven in terms of Reverend Barber. Talk 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 a little bit about about the 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 anticipated impact, the, the desire, the vision, uh, why that's critical. Whether it's uh, and I'll be secular driven here. Whether it's just a, a market approach to increase the prominence of the Divinity School, or is it something that really has ramifications beyond the existence of 409 Prospect? Well, listen, we are extremely excited here at Yale Divinity School to be having Urban William Barber joining us and um, heading up a beautiful initiative, a Center for Public Theology and Public Policy. And it is, it is so exciting because it is in such continuity with what we want to be about at the Divinity School. And that's this, that's this, Tom. I mean, what we, we, we do two things well here. The one is that we educate next generation of, of leaders. And we, we want to do that by putting at the very center of their formation a moral vision for whatever they're going to do. So whether if they're going to stay within the religious fields, wonderful. We want, we want a, a moral vision that drives that. But also, for anyone else in the university who is um, serious about um, a vocational identity that has a moral compass driving it, and not simply a kind of economic calculation driving their vocational identity. And so by, by having William Barber come, who is um, world-renowned for doing precisely what I just said, of um, inviting, inviting people to do their to do their living, do their work, uh, and form po public policies that help people, especially the poor, driven by a moral vision, and not by the things we've been talking about today. Um, that's at the heart of his work. You know, his celebrated work in North Carolina with the NAACP, his celebrated um, national uh, poor people's campaign movement. All of this is um, so important for us in, in terms of, of creating the next generation of people who take seriously what it means to be not simply good citizens, but people who work toward the good in everything mm -hmm. they do. So having him here is going to be exciting. What Our, our hope and our prayer um, is that 
with the center being here, with the faculty who are already here at the Divinity School and colleagues across the university, what we want to do is to create an opportunity for students across the university to um, come and engage in learning public theology, um, thinking about what it means to have a moral compass driving my work mm-hmm. and how that will translate into public policy, both public policy in terms of what governments, governments do and create, mm-hmm. but public policy in terms of the way we do all our work, no matter what our field of endeavor, with a view toward the good, the common good of the public, with a special focus on the poor in this country and around the world, the mm-hmm. special focus on those whose voices are not at the table, and to challenge the ways in which the poor are ignored continuously in the Western world and the ways in which the poor are manipulated to walk inside the continuing racial antagonism of not only this country, but the Western world. So we're excited about having uh, Billy Barber here. He is an ordained clergy and a brilliant scholar. And um, we already have um, incredible energy enthusiasm across the university, beginning with our president and provost about having him here and having his team here. Um, and so that's going to be, that's going to be incredible. When you, and just for, <clears throat> I appreciate your sharing that, that, that clarification. Uh, are you comfortable in mentioning that you first met that, that esteemed gentleman b- before you two became celebs? <laughs> Billy Barber and I go back to the to the 1980s, man. I, I met him. He and I first met when uh, I I came. I was coming to Duke to uh, do my PhD, and he was there doing an MDiv. <laughs> and we met uh, after a chapel service. He met me and my, my then new new newly uh, uh, married wife. To, she was my my bride, and so. We have been uh, close family friends for for decades. Um, God, I'm Godfather to his children, and um, he's a he's a dear dear friend. But and then later on, when I became a faculty person, he sat in some of my classes, and so uh, we we go way back. And from the very beginning, uh, and I, you, you, you when you when you meet someone who you know is going to uh, do good work because yes. you you sense the deep. We talked about this earlier, the deep spiritual and intellectual integrity that drives the person and the way in which those two things are woven inextricably. Mm-hmm. Meet someone like that. You know this person is going to do great work because they they can't do anything else other than do great work because mm-hmm. this is who they are. And so with, with William Barber, what you see on stage, what you see when he's being interviewed, that is exactly who that man is. So we go, we go way back. We go Indeed. way back. <laughs> we, we have about five more minutes. Let's, let's kind of conclude for this particular episode. And as I say, I've already publicly uh, twisted your arm to come back at some, some point. <laughs> and the, let's, I want to give you three or four more minutes to kind of check about, talk about, you mentioned the word spiritual discipline, but spiritual, mm-hmm. spiritual opportunity, what kind of advice, suggestions would you share with people for them to, be alert, to be aware, to be open to spiritual guidance, uh, whether it's this sickness or illness or challenges or stress, just how, 
what 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 are, what are your thoughts about understanding that the this the spirit energy is always available? This is a great question. So I I especially in this moment, I encourage people. And let's come back to the thing we talked about earlier in terms of hope to um, step into the discipline of hope. And for those of us who are Christian, we know what that means. It means that um, the the way in which we understand our daily life um, has to be captured inside our our life with God. Uh, I, I tell my students all the time that what the life of Jesus brought us into was a life that li- that's lived each day between invocation and benediction. Mm-hmm. And so we, we understand that we are inside of a story that each day there is invocation, the calling of God to guide us. And at the end of the day, benediction. In between invocation and benediction, there is what I call the joy of the repetition, the joy of turning my daily struggles, my daily challenges, toward um, a a centering, listening to what the Spirit of God is saying to. Hmm. And I think it is so important, especially as we are still inside the wounding of this pandemic and all that it has unleashed on us, that it is crucial and important for people to understand their lives inside the daily repetition with God. And for those of us who are Christian inside the, the work that Jesus has made possible of seeing ourselves inside daily invocation. Mm-hmm. Daily invocation. That, that's, that's what I, I'm encouraging people to, to do these days. We, we live inside the story of God. Mm. And for so many people, especially those who are Christian, they have not yet fully realized what that means, that you, you are inside the work of God. And so the question is, and maybe the last thing I'll say today, the question is, how are you yielding to the Spirit of God working in and around you? I have found in my time that the the most important question when in relationship to God is not what does God want or even what is God doing. The most important question is are we yielding to what God is saying to us? And that, that is the question I want your listeners to meditate upon. Hmm. Well, Harry, we're going to end. We'll end. I have one more follow-up, but I'll say that for the next, our next, our next conversation. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we need to end, hit the punction, punctuation mark right there. That's, that, that's a good conclusion. Reverend, I hope to see you perhaps uh, this evening and just really appreciate mm-hmm. your, your being available to us. Glad to do so. Sharon. Glad to do so. Glad to do so. Be well. Understand what black is. The source from which all things come. Security blanket for the stars. Understand what black is. It's not a color. It's the basis of all colors. It is not a complexion. It is a reflection of all complexions called human. And out of this blackness, passion flows like a river. Feelings tell the truth, song and dance and making you laugh.